Our scripture today comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of God. You can be seated. As we continue in this series from 1 Corinthians, we find ourselves today dealing with a passage that has to do with marriage and uh, probably more importantly, divorce, uh, divorce, marriage and divorce. And when we come to it, it is a passage that is riddled with difficulty and uh, uh, some things that are hard to understand and some things that are hard to explain. So we're going to jump in. I remember being in Greek and Hebrew. My Greek and Hebrew professor was one and the same. He was a super smart guy. And he used to say to us, there are three rules of study in Scripture. Three rules of Scripture interpretation. They are context, context, and context. And his point was well made and hopefully well taken by us as students that in order to understand Scripture, we must understand everything that is around it. And so that's a historical context. When I teach Old Testament, as I'm doing now, we talk about a historical context. We've got to see the history of the book, a remote context. We've got to look at what's around the book, and then immediate context, what's right there in the chapter. And so this morning, we're going to look at the historical context and the immediate context of this passage Historically, Corinth was a city that was part of Rome, and Rome had a view of divorce uh, that was different than that of the Jews. We're familiar with the biblical view of divorce, and the biblical view of divorce is this, that uh, there is no divorce. Uh, Jesus said uh, he gave uh, not a prescription for a failed marriage, but a permission if there's infidelity in the marriage for there, there to be divorce. And so Jesus gave that. You could look at some other New Testament texts and say there's a case for abandonment, uh, but that has to be very, very narrow. Uh, those are the two New Testament places where divorce is uh, permitted. Uh, if you look at that, some folks will have some different views and don't have time to get in all those today. But then if you look at the Corinthian view of divorce and remarriage, we happen to think oftentimes we talk about the good old days, right? The good old days. The good old days are what? Well, just whenever 50 years before you were born. Those are good old days. I imagine 50 years ago they talked about the good old days for 50 years before they were born. And so there's a tendency to think that people used to have it all together and now they don't. Well, the reality is that since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, things have been a mess. And in Corinth, 
uh, divorce was rampant. It was, the, uh, it was the accepted thing to do. As a matter of fact, came across this quote from Seneca. Seneca was a philosopher who was born in 4 BC, died in 65 AD. And here's what he wrote, and I quote, Few women seem to blush at divorce, and many reckon their years not by the number of consuls, but by their number of husbands. They leave home in order to marry and marry in order to divorce. So in the Corinthian culture, divorce was rampant and accepted. Tacitus, who was born a few years before Seneca died, so he was born, uh, I think, in the 50s, uh, 50-something AD, uh, he said that divorce was enacted for a wide variety of reasons, including personal taste and social aspiration. What did he mean? He meant if you were married and your wife was kind of holding you back socially, well, just get rid of her. Find one who knows what fork to use and kind of how to eat well, and you'll move right up the social ladder. Or if, uh, if, if a woman's married to a man and he's just a country guy, you know, a hunter type, big long beard or whatever, get rid of him. And if you do, uh, the result of that is you'll move right on up the social ladder. That was their view of marriage and divorce. It was crazy loose. And so it is into that context, that's the historical context of this passage that Paul speaks. And he says, in light of that historical context, let me talk to you about what's going on. Well, we add that then to the immediate context, and that's the Corinthian problem. Uh, you recall two Sundays ago, and last Sunday, we, last Sunday was awkward Sunday of the year, and uh, if you weren't here, just podcast it alone. Uh, but uh, last Sunday, uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7. And when we did, there is a question here, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so they had written him saying, hey, we don't think there should be any uh, sexual relations even in marriage. We should be that holy. We should be that godly that even in the context of marriage, we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, with that as their backdrop then, uh, what uh, commentators believe to be the case is there's a group of Corinthian women who are super spiritual godly women, all right? So they've achieved a level of spirituality that their husbands have not. And so their husbands are either... Uh, just uh, run-of-the-mill Christians, they're not the super spiritual men, you know, that these women are looking for, number one, or number two, their husbands are lost. Their husbands don't know Christ, and so these women have reached this level, they're the ones creating some of these issues in the church at Corinth, they're the ones writing to uh, Paul and saying, okay, what should we do? And so on one level, they're saying, hey, we should live in this marriage, and if you're going to be godly, no need to participate in sexual relations. And and so there's that case, and now there's this case of marriage and divorce. And to that, Paul gives three commands, and I want you to hear them, three commands, two are negative, one positive. Number one, don't divorce because he's not spiritual. That's what Paul says. Uh, What gives us a clue that this problem is primarily among women is, if you look at it, 
Paul says in verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. It's interesting that he mentions the women first. That's unusual. Paul, who is a faithful Jew, most likely would have referred to Jews first. So that gives us a clue that the women are thinking, maybe we should follow through with the divorce. He's just not up to par. And Paul says, don't divorce because he isn't spiritual. And uh, reminds me of a true, legit story. Growing up, I grew up way back in the woods, as many of you know. We were so far back in the woods, we were almost back in town. My sister's here. She can vouch for me. Uh, we were way country, and, and, and really, 25 miles, I think, we lived from the closest town, and the closest town was a tad bit bigger than Old Fort. And so, so I remember when the neighbor up the road, Thelma, uh, got saved, or got religion. I'm not sure what happened, but something happened to Thelma. And uh, Thelma was a stout, short of stature woman, but she was stout and, you know, a little heavy. And, and Thelma came to Christ. Something happened down at the Free Will Baptist Church along the creek bank. And so that's where I grew up, a little Free Will Baptist Church. The windows raised when the weather was good. We could hear the creek going by. It was just a small little Free Will Baptist Church built right there on the creek. And Thelma got religion or got saved or something. Well, Thelma went home, and I don't remember Thelma's husband's name, but he, he wasn't jiving with all this newfound religion she had. And so much so that Thelma's religion was so deep that it caused her to think that the TV had to go. All right, so when Thelma got saved, uh, it was either Thelma or the TV. And what Thelma did, uh, because we heard the shot ring out through the neighborhood, is to toss that TV out into the yard and get the shotgun and shoot it that was her way of getting rid of the tv now something tells me that that did not lead her husband to christ there's something that says to me that could have introduced a tad bit of friction into the marriage you see and that's what paul is addressing here he is saying don't divorce your husband because he's not as spiritual as you are what Paul is saying, and folks, we have to hear this, and he's speaking it into a Corinthian culture that has a loose view of divorce. What Paul is saying is that marriage is so honored by God. And I say this to every couple that I sit down with when they're having marital problems. And inevitably, inevitably, uh, when people start to have problems, they, it's like this uh, color uh, rolls down over their glasses, and so, literally, I have uh, uh, talked to men, talked to women, and they would say, well, I have this card that he wrote me, and he wrote me this card a, a month ago saying, you're the love of my life, you're the dream, you're everything I've ever longed for, you know, I mean, he didn't say it, he bought it, but the card said it. And then a month later, all he could talk about is how bad it is. Well, well what happened Nothing happened in the marriage that bad. In four weeks, something's going on in the heart. And, what, and, and so inevitably, I'll hear one of them say, well, you know, it was a mistake from the start. Uh, she wasn't a Christian when we got married, or he wasn't a Christian when we got married. Um, you know, we got off to a bad start. Here's the, the reality, folks. Well, we start off poorly. God can end really well. Amen. Where we get off to a really bad start, God can finish that really well. And when you're in a marriage, God is into your marriage. 
God is all about your marriage. God's number one priority is your marriage. He loves you and he loves the two of you to stay married. And that's the theme that unfolds all throughout this passage. And it speaks into a Corinthian culture which said divorce, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens. I mean, he doesn't look good. He doesn't act right. Uh, It's fine for you to give him or give her a bill of divorce. And so Paul's first command is don't divorce him because he isn't spiritual. His second command is don't divorce because he's not saved, Paul says. Look at this. He says if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever or any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever. And so Paul says uh, if that is the case, verse uh, 12, to the rest I say, who is this? People in mixed marriages, meaning one's Believer one isn't. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. What is he saying? Paul is saying this. He is saying if you come to faith in Christ, and this happens all the time in the church where people come to faith in Christ, and you find Christ, and Christ is so real and wonderful to you, and you have a wife, And Christ isn't that for her. But she's fine to still live with you. And on Sunday morning, you get up and come to worship and she stays home. You shouldn't feel bad for walking in here by yourself, number one. Number two, you shouldn't go home and say, well, this isn't going to work. That's not what Christ intended by converting you. It's not his plan, and his desire is to save you and destroy your marriage. Do you see how that doesn't make sense? And that's what Paul is saying here. God's intention for your marriage is to save your marriage, and so stay married. Don't divorce because he isn't saved. Um, there is this thought that originates from 7-1 that says, hey, we shouldn't have any kind of sexual relations in marriage. And, and then there's this thought you carry that over, especially if he's an unbeliever. Especially if she's an unbeliever would be the thought. I mean, if they don't know Christ, that compounds that problem. I've asked for permission to share this story. It is the story of several of you in the room today. Um... But there is a woman who sometimes attends this church who for many, many years, when she would be in town, attended by herself. Some of you will know her when I tell you her name. Her name is Mary Jo Plemons. Mary Jo Plemons is Miss Harris's oldest daughter. And Mary Jo married Bob many, many years ago. Uh, Mary Jo and Bob are both in their 70s. They live in Winston-Salem. And so she married Bob, and Bob uh, was and is a brilliant man. Brilliant man. He graduated from Old Fort High School uh, back in the day. And Bob uh, went on to Wake Forest, played baseball at Wake Forest, ACC Pitcher of the Year, uh, I think three years in a row, left Wake Forest University, played for the Baltimore Orioles uh, for a little bit, left there, and went to Auburn University, got his master's, and, and got his doctorate. 
Bob taught at UT, and then Bob trekked over and uh, taught at NC State, and he finally ended up at his alma mater at, uh, at Wake Forest as the Reynolds Professor of Science and Math. Brilliant guy. Brilliant. But did not know the Lord at all. No relationship with God. Mary Jo, on the other hand, came to Christ early in life and loved Christ and led in Winston-Salem an international ministry that ministered to hundreds of internationals that live in Winston-Salem. And for years, Mary Jo attended church and Bob did not. She, she served in church. She volunteered and, and, and Bob uh, just didn't. Bob's intellectual acumen, his his intelligence was such an obstacle for him to trust Christ. When I was in seminary, I would trek down, and sometimes my classes were in Charlotte on a Monday and Tuesday. Uh, they were in uh, the town of Wake Forest, uh, uh, south of Raleigh. And I would uh, go to class in Charlotte, spend the night at Bobby Mary Joe's house uh, on a Monday night, and then trek on down the 40 to class early on a Tuesday morning. Uh, I remember uh, seeing a formula on the wall in Bob and Mary Jo's house, and I said, Bob, what is that? And he said, well, Bob's super humble. Well, this little formula I invented. And I said, well, what does it do? And it uh, turns out there was an article in the Wall Street Journal where it talked about uh, Dr. Plemons taking the twinkle out of stars. It was a formula that you put into uh, a telescope, and uh, when you do, it equalizes the gases in the atmosphere so that when you look through that, the stars no longer twinkle. It's the gases that cause them to do that. Bob invented that formula, and then they took it and put it in the missiles in the Gulf War. That's why they were so accurate. It was Bob's formula. And so I said, well, Bob, he, he worked for the Pentagon. I said, what are you working on? He said, well, not much that I can tell you about. But, uh, uh, but I said, I'm a pastor. You can tell me. Not it neither. I, I just, uh, but he said, I am working. I'm studying right now the eye of a fly. He said, because its ability to move is unmatched in, in, in animal life. And he said, I'm studying that, and we're developing a camera that will go in the front of a soldier's helmet uh, when he's out on the field, and it will send pictures back to uh, the command center. Bob was brilliant. And Mary Jo loved the Lord, and they were married for 40-some years, and she prayed for her husband. He never attended church unless there was some special thing ever. She actively engaged in church and leadership. Well, of all things for this intellectual, one night their church was doing, Calvary Baptist in Winston, was doing a dramatic presentation you may have heard of called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. And Bob went with Mary Jo, and that night, he came home and gave his life to Christ. Bob goes to Bible study every Tuesday night now. He's in worship with her every time they're here. He came 
to Christ. Mary Jo faithfully lived it in front of him. Paul says, don't quit your marriage because he's unsaved. You could add by implication, don't look down on him. Don't think he's lesser than. I've said, and I contend this morning, that the people I admire greatest who attend this church are the women who come without their husbands. Always have. To me, it's super hard to walk into a place like this. Husband is at home. You've had to leave by yourself, especially when you have young children. And you're trying to convince them they need to come when he's not trying to convince them they need to come. That's hard. I so admire you. I I honestly believe that God in his grace has gifted you and graced you to be able to do what you do. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't quit. There are wives sitting in this service today who have prayed for years and their husbands are now sitting with them in worship and their husbands had no idea the burden that their wives carried for years for them to come to Christ. I said the whole time I was a youth minister, no no missionary dating. You know, don't date somebody because you think you're going to change her. But... There is everything biblical about missionary marriage. If you're married, you're on mission if he's lost or she's lost. You're on a a permanent mission trip. You're on a constant mission. He's watching everything you do. He's watching your attitude. She's watching you. She's observing you 24-7. It's the most difficult thing to endure at times, but... You're on this permanent mission trip. Uh, number three, Paul says, stay married. Uh, so, so there's a two. There's a don't divorce, don't divorce. Then there's a stay married because you are holy and he is too. He being your husband or she being your wife. Now, I've already established that Jesus gives a couple of reasons that divorce is permitted. Infidelity then you can make the case for abandonment. But here we're talking about preferences. Look at this. Paul says something interesting here. He says, um, uh, if any, uh, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has, a, God has called you to peace. For how do we know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do we know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here we have this concept that's an Old Testament concept called the transferability of holiness. How does this work and what does this mean? Uh, This puzzles commentators. In the Old Testament, in Exodus uh, Exodus, uh, 29, in the Old Testament, the altar was said to be holy. And by extension, anybody who touched it was what? Holy. It was the transferability of the holiness of the altar. 
In Exodus 30, the utensils of the temple were said to be holy. And by extension, anyone who used those utensils was said to be what? Holy. It's the transferability of holiness. In Leviticus 6, verse 18, every male who eats the holy unleavened bread is said to be holy. And by extension, anyone who touches those men who eat that unleavened bread are what, church? Holy. Paul seems to take that transferability of holiness in the Old Testament and put it into marriage in the new. Well, what does it mean? Does it mean, okay, if I come to church, but he doesn't, he's on the golf course right now, but I'm in here, uh, he's going to be saved. Well, no, that would uh, contradict everything Paul says about uh, salvation by grace through faith. So we know that isn't the case. So Paul, in order to make his case then, talks about children. What does he say about children? Paul says, otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Don't forget context, context, and context. What is Paul saying? Most likely, this is a Corinthian women problem who've got some unholy husbands, right? They're just unholy. Maybe they're uncouth too, but at least they're unholy. And what are they saying? Well, I think we should divorce. Why? Well, I'm holy. He isn't. So Paul very wisely says then, I guess your kids aren't holy, are they? Do you think any of those women bought that? No. No. No, our kids are holy. It's just that he isn't. So Furnish, who is a New Testament commentator, this is what he said. So he, this is a syllogism. It's, it's, it's logic. He says, here's Paul's argument. Holy children, then, are produced by what kind of marriages? Holy Mixed marriages, meaning believer and unbeliever, produce what kind of children? Holy children. Therefore, mixed marriages are what kind of marriages? Holy. couple practical implications. Please hear me. Because for most of you who sit in here and you're with your husband or with your wife, this never enters your mind. But I guarantee you that many, many, if not all, of the women who walk in here without their husbands or the men who walk in here without their wives, they think for some crazy reason that you, with your spouses, are here and they, without, are here. And Paul says, no. No, your marriage is just as holy in the sight of God as is theirs. What does this say about God's view of marriage? Easy test here. High or low, church? High. So high that your marriage to that unbelieving husband, your marriage to the unbelieving wife in his eyes is is as holy as every couple sitting in the room together with husband and wife. Uh, This convicts us in that we tend to place a low view of marriage as the Corinthians did. And then Paul makes a practical, so that's a logical response. He makes a practical one. He says, God has called you to what? Peace. 
All right, so God doesn't call you to get saved and come home and blow up the television, all right? That's the point. He didn't call you to get religion, to get saved, throw the TV out. That's not peaceful, by the way. That doesn't lead your husband to Christ, nor does it lead your wife to Christ. He doesn't call you to come in. There may be some things, wives, that your husband does that you totally do not agree with. Don't go disrupting everything just because you've come to faith in Christ. You, uh, husbands, don't go uh, preaching to your wife all the time because she is not walking with God as you think she ought to. Why? Paul says, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? How do you know? God may have you where you are on mission, as a missionary in your marriage. If that is the case, the reality with missionaries is that their lives are not their own. They live not for themselves. They live not to be satisfied, but to proclaim Christ. You very well are placed in your marriage by the grace of God because God knows in his gracious gifts you can handle it. Oh, there are people sitting in a room this morning that said there's no way I could ever do that. I could never do it. I could not fly solo as a believer. Well, you don't have to. But there are those of you who do, and God, by his grace, empowers you to do it. Tony Evans tells the story. His dad was 30 years old when he came to Christ. Tony was 10 years old at the time, and Tony's mom wasn't happy about it. He said she disliked my dad as a sinner, and she, she hated him as a saint. So he said the only safe time for my dad to read his Bible was at night after mom went to bed. And so he would go into another bedroom at night and read and pray when he knew that his wife was asleep because she would get so angry just for him reading the Bible. That went on for a year. Tony's dad faithfully attending church reading scripture, praying at night, when one night the wife woke up and walked into Tony Evans' dad's room where he was praying and reading. And this time it wasn't to belittle him or to berate him. But Tony Evans says in a book that he wrote that her lips were quivering and she said, I've got to know how to get what you have. And that night in that room, Tony's dad led his mom to Christ. The two of them together led Tony and his two brothers and his sister to Christ. God saved that entire family. Our praise team is going to come now. And as they do, you're going to hear a song <clears throat> And the song that you're going to hear deals with 
how you must apply this message. I want to speak to two groups of people today. First of all, I want to speak to you who have been through a divorce. And any time a pastor preaches on this, you have ungodly and unnecessary guilt. The divorce wasn't your doing. You hate thinking through it again. You must give that to the Lord. Number two, I want to speak to those of you who sit here and we admire and applaud you as a church and you sit here and every Sunday you come and your desire is one day that your husband will sit by you, that your wife will join you. This song says that the object of your affection and your attention and your hope can be Jesus Christ. That he is wonderful and beautiful and he is enough. Finally, the third group. For those of you who sit here this morning and maybe you came with your husband and your wife but you're lost and you've watched her, you've watched him, or you've watched a family member or a friend, and you say, I came in here not knowing Christ. I want to know him. If that is you, we're going to sit during this song and listen this morning. I'll be down front. You can come and find me. Let's listen to the words of this song.